This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Adrian King, the co-host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Anne Bailey about her new book, Semi-Queer, Inside the World of Gay, Trans, and Black Truck Drivers. Welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I'm so excited about your book. Um, and I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself. I am a person who's done both academic jobs and blue-collar jobs. And what I try to do in my books and the rest of my life is think about how those two categories relate to each other and why we tend as a culture to keep them separate. So there aren't that many people that have been both scholars, intellectuals, professors, PhDs, and car mechanics and truck drivers and had both of those kind of jobs. And what I try to do is both think across that divide and think about why in kind of public discourse that divide exists, who it's serving, what it means. So in my life, I try to do both of those things. Talk to students at elite universities, talk to scholars and activists, and talk to and think about blue-collar workers, factory workers, truck drivers, you know, everyone I can think about. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the journey um, and your experience that led you to reach that point? I come from a family that has intense blue-collar roots. So I had always grown up believing in unions, believing that blue-collar jobs and blue-collar workers were valued and important. You know, I have just kind of dense connections to all of that through my family. And after I got my PhD, the jobs I could get in academia were um, temporary, badly paying. Just I just didn't like them. So I took 10 years and worked as a car mechanic during that time. And partly that's because my kids were young and I wanted to be around. And I also wanted to learn how it felt to do and sort of sink into a blue collar job. And I'm a visibly queer person. So I wondered what it was like to be in that kind of job as a visibly queer person. So anyway, I fixed cars in an independent repair shop in Chicago for um, about 10 years. And then at the end of that time, I thought, well, I want to kind of write about what this experience means. So I switched back into an academic job, and I did that for about 15 years. Uh, two, I stretched over two different um, higher ed institutions. And then after that, I decided to become a truck driver. So I trained, got a commercial driving license, and drove over the road for a little while. So I like to do sort of alternating between working and then thinking about what that work means, how it's structured, how culture kind of receives and understands what that work is and means, how that relates to sexuality, embodiment, racial identity, how those all kind of overlap and how persistently our culture tries to put them in kind of separate boxes. 
like they're separate situations. And, you know, so I've spent my life trying to think about and live how they're actually intertwined. Yeah, and I feel like um, the book did such a great job of integrating those. And I also, um, while I was reading it, I felt that like urgency and that importance um, that you, yeah, that you just talked about. Um, can you talk about, um, I guess, the process for this book um, when you decided to write this book, and and um, maybe even like how you decided um, to pick this topic? Okay, so I had been working at a university in Indiana called Indiana University, Indiana University Northwest, which is in Gary. That's where I wrote my first book, which is about steelworkers. So the Gary setting makes sense of that. But that university denied me promotion and tenure, which is very common for mm. queer academics. It's very common for university structures to appear diversity embracing and appear queer and minority accepting and not right. practice that at all. So I've had a long history of people that, that exist in the world thinking that blue collar work settings will be unwelcoming to queer people and academic work settings will be welcoming. And the opposite is in fact true. University settings routinely fire or fail to hire queer workers and blue-collar work settings are much more welcoming. So that's what happened to me. I had a tenure-track job. I produced very well. I got very good ratings and was nonetheless dismissed. So I was disappointed. I was angry. I was broke. Right. You know, my life was not going well right then. And I had always wanted to be a trucker. I love to drive. You know, you can tell from my car shop experience that I enjoy engines I like sort of figuring out how things work. So I decided to just kind of go look into being a trucker. And I went to a truck driving school in Gary, Indiana, which is where I lived. I went to the school. I kind of told them where I was in my life. And they, they must be used to this, right? So they said to me, why don't you come out into the yard and step into a truck? <laughs> so, you know, I did it. I went out and <laughs> I went out into the um, large parking lot where they have their students practice and I stepped up into a semi and just sat there in the seat and held the steering wheel and almost instantly like the anger and bitterness that I had been carrying just left. And I felt like this is something that I could do that's meaningful, interesting, pays decently. I just sort of sitting in the vehicle had that kind of effect on my emotions and the resentment that I was living with. So instantly I just knew, all right, I'm going to do it. I signed up for truck driving school. I took the course. Um, I failed the test twice, <laughs> which was, you know, difficult because I'm a PhD, right? Like my life has been bumpy, but student I've always been good at. So it was somewhat challenging to be like the worst in the class. I was the only one, I was the oldest, and I just could not get it. <laughs> but, you know, eventually I did. They were totally patient with me. My teacher there was named Bob, and he was, he was the greatest. He just kept working with me. He taught me so much about teaching. But anyway, on the third try, I did pass the test. I signed with a company out of Wisconsin. I drove with them for a while. And the thing is that... I chose trucking for reasons, right? I thought that it would be about freedom and independence and I would have control over where I went. I would get to see a lot of different parts of the world and participate in them. 
and I would be able to kind of manage my schedule. In my head, that's what trucking was going to be, and it was going to pay decently. And I ultimately decided to write about it because none of those things were true. So the pay is terrible. The um, freedom is incredibly limited by a complicated system of rules, laws, surveillance, insurance, the amount of kind of micromanagement of truck drivers in their first three to five years of trucking employment is mind blowing. Um, so that's one of the things I wanted to write about. And the other was in my sort of naive Indiana worldview, I thought that truckers were straight white men. That's what I thought. You know, that's who I had in my head when I imagined a trucker. And I had just written this book about steelworkers in which the gay, lesbian, and transgender steelworkers that I interviewed were very quiet at work, secretive about their sexual orientation, secretive about their history, very cautious and self-protective. And they had reasons, and I explained it in the book, right? But I thought that that would then be the model in trucker life. And it wasn't. There were just vast volumes of queer, trans, black, Muslim, immigrant, Mexican, indigenous, like trucking as a workforce was incredibly varied and incredibly interesting. And everyone was out and so excited to talk to me about their experiences and what happened, right? Because trucking is a pretty lonely business. And so when they came upon anyone who was like, I didn't expect to see you here. Can you tell me why you're here and what it's like? They were very happy to <laughs> talk my ear off. So, and it's not what I expected, right? Like when I would truck into California, there are hardly any white truckers in California. Hardly any. I didn't know that. Like there were so many things that were different than what I expected. And so I wanted to kind of step away from trucking enough that I could talk to people who did it, try to understand um, how the perception had gotten so just different from the reality of what trucking was like and what might be done to make the experience better. So mostly it was just, I trucked because I wanted to and because I was out of options. But when I started doing it, it was just so different from how I imagined it in those two central ways. So I wanted to kind of talk to people who did it and try to understand why, and also whether those were related, right? So is the incredible increase in rules, regulations, micromanagement, surveillance technology, is that related to, possibly caused by, the incredible increase in women, queers, African-Americans, immigrants, right? Because, you know, in workforces, often, as soon as people who are seen as, like, dangerous or threatening or unreliable, as soon as those people become the dominant workers in a workforce, the corporate powers that be will just clamp down on and increase regulations on those people. So I wondered if that was the relationship or if it was more that as the workforce gets um, less pay and more micromanagement, all the sort of straight cis white guys were like, hell no. And they laughed because they could, because they can get other jobs. Whereas people like, you know, trans women, indigenous people, no one else is going to hire us. So they'd be like, all right, well, I guess we'll stay here. Like thinking about, whether these two um, changes in the trucking experience were related and how was a question that I try to answer in my book.
And so what I did is after I stopped trucking, I interviewed 66 current truck drivers. And I'm an oral historian, right? So these are long, open-ended interviews where I would talk to someone who I met in person or met on the internet or met through another trucker and say, like, would you be willing to talk to me about your experience trucking? And if they agreed to, then I would set up a subsequent meeting with them, usually in person, sometimes on Skype or occasionally on the phone. And we would sit down and I would, you know, get them to talk about what it was like out there, how they got into it, what was changing, what wasn't, what worked for them about trucking, what the problems were. And we would just sort of have long rambling conversations about what trucking was like. So I did that formal interview structure with 66 different truckers. And then I also just did the anthropological method that's called deep hanging out. I would just go to truck stops and just, you know, stay there for a day, maybe two days, watch people come and go, try to engage them in conversation. You know, sometimes I'd meet um, future narratives that way. Sometimes I would just have brief conversations. Um, and those appear as just sort of the, the background story of what it's like out there. And so from all that, I wrote a book, which is, you know, the book I'm talking about now. Um, I'm curious what it was like accessing that space as um, someone who is queer and as um, someone who has um, been a truck driver. Uh-huh. Being a truck driver was so important. So, I mean, there is a, there is a way that truckers expect to be approached by the media, by authors, by people who are writing about kind of the romance of the road, the myth of the lone wolf, you know, there's a lot of media coverage of truckers and they don't like it and they're tired of it and they don't want to be used for that, right? So it completely helped that I was someone who had done it. I could enter the conversation as a former trucker. It also helped that I was terrible, right? So, um, you know, I was fired after five months which is very common in the trucking workforce. I mean, turnover is really high. People frequently can't stay with their first company, right? So it wasn't that it wasn't that I was, um, I guess, uniquely awful, but I shared the experience of struggling in the industry. And that's something that so many truckers can relate to. And so I would tell them, you know, I used to drive for this company. I lost that job, but I'm still interested in, like, what the experience of trucking work is like. And that I could talk about, you know, the dirt, the hours, the schedule, and talk as an insider informed person was really important. Being queer was much less of an issue. I mean, like I said, it's, it's increasingly common. Um, almost, I mean, one of the people that I interviewed in my book recently called me and said that, she's a trans woman, she said that she happened to go to a truck step in Utah, which we don't think of as particularly, you know, get your trans friendly place. She went to a truck stop in Utah and she was in the women's room, you know, kind of washing up a little at the sink, just living her trucker life. And she looked about her and realized that the three other women in that truck stop bathroom were all trans. So that then they had, you know, obviously they stayed there for a while and talked about the experience of trans truckers in public space, right? But also that's less rare than you would think. So, you know, five years ago, that would be, shocking but now it's much less so it's pretty common now to see more than one trans queer person in trucking space at the same time 
So that wasn't an issue, um, much less than it would have been in many of the sort of supposedly open-minded, diverse, accepting, white or pink collar workspaces. Nobody says anything when a, you know, lesbian trucker walks into a truck stop. Now, that does vary some regionally. Um, so another thing that I did as part of my research is I would ask truckers if I could ride with them. When I was trucking myself, I was totally intimidated about mountains. You know, like I said, I was not a major winner as a truck driver. So I was scared about the part where you're going down the mountain and you have all that weight behind you. Trucking brakes are terrible. Um, you know, that's why they have those runaway truck ramps because frequently coming down a mountain, your brakes burn or wear out or seize up. And so you can't stop. So how truckers deal with this is when they're going up a mountain, they downshift so that the you know engine has enough power to pull the load, right? And so then the, the sort of formula you use is whatever gear you wound up in to get up the mountain, you stay in that gear to go back down. So if you've slowed down to, say, 25 miles an hour in order to get up the incline, you remain in that gear on the way down and at that speed so that you don't have to hit the brakes all the time. Fine. For whatever reason, I was totally intimidated by this. And I asked my company to keep me um, east of the Mississippi so I didn't have to deal with the Rockies, say. But in order to write the book, you know, I wanted the experience of doing those runs out to California or other parts of the West Coast. So I would ask truckers who I interviewed whether they would just let me ride along, you know, in the passenger seat. And I did that a lot. And there was one time that me and another lesbian were, um, you know, she was on a run. And we stopped again in Utah, <laughs> a Utah story. We stopped in Utah and the only restaurant available at that truck stop was Denny's, which is, you know, more common than you would like. But so we decided to go to the Denny's and I went in first and I sat down and like, I got some looks, but it, it was not threatening. But then she came in too. And she's also just like one of those people that like might as well have deck tattooed on her forehead, right? Like the obvious. Um, and when there were two of us, the sort of ominous avoiding of us was so obvious. So like we waited a good 15 minutes before a server came over. Everyone was looking at us like we were, you know, oozing poison out our pores. I mean, there was something about sort of seeing two together that was much more threatening to that particular trucker space than there had been when there was just one um, physically lesbian person. So there were moments like that. And I did spend a lot of time alone by myself in truck stops, which is, you know, an interesting and sometimes disturbing experience. But, you know, it was all fine. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about um, the significance of choosing um, truck driving for, um, like, gay, trans, um, and, like, other people of color. Um, why, yeah, why truck driving? Yeah, there are several reasons. The first is practical. Um, truck driving is hiring. It's always hiring. You can always get work. And so if you're someone who has a hard time getting work in the United States right now because of racist hiring practices, transphobic hiring practices, trucking is somewhere where you can get hired. Almost anyone can get hired. You know, they'll say, if you can put your butt in the seat and get from point A to point B, 
we'll hire you. So that's one of the main reasons that the people I interviewed went into trucking. So, you know, I interviewed a bold lesbian indigenous butch. And, you know, it's going to be difficult getting anyone else to hire someone who looks like that. That's just the racism of the world. And that, you know, spreads all into African-American populations, Mexican immigrant populations. I mean, we know this, right? But that's the experience of why people go into trucking. But there's also a deeper reason that I discovered in doing my research, which is harder to describe, but it's more like the motion of trucking, the way that you're never in one place and never know where you're going to be next and are always moving and always um, reimagining yourself because you're always winding up in a different place. So you have sort of continuous reminder that nothing is fixed. There's something about the way that that, um, the movement of the truck becomes the movement of the person, that that expresses some kind of psychic condition that queer, trans, indigenous, immigrant, people of color, people often feel in the United States. Being sort of always excluded and never welcome and um, sort of shunted from place to place. When you're in a truck, you have an ability to kind of feel like that's being expressed as your way of interacting with the world. So there were so many people that I interviewed um, who said that the motion of the truck made them feel like they had some kind of control of the way that the world had treated them. And it gave them an ability to express their unique identity in a way that felt powerful to them. So one trans woman that I interviewed, for example, had the metaphor of being in a truck and you're driving the truck through space and you get to a T intersection and you don't know which way to go. And there's so many restrictions of where trucks can go and low bridges and blah, blah, blah. So often in a truck, you get to a place where you have to quickly make a judgment about which direction to turn. And that judgment is drawn from your experience and your kind of feel for the area and all of these, you know, factors that are hard to quantify. So, you know, she said, as a trucker, I get to a T intersection and I just have to trust my gut and know which way to go. And she learned that as a trucker. But then she said, the same thing happened with my gender. I felt like I was at this kind of life crossroads and I just had to trust my gut, just like I do in a truck and find my way to the gender expression that I wanted to. And that way of connecting those two things is common in the way that the truckers that I interviewed think about what trucking means to them. It's not just a job. It's a way that they give kind of material embodiment to their identity as marginalized people in this culture. So one of the black women that I interviewed said that she, she had young children and people had always told her that trucking wasn't for her because she had young children. And one day she just said like, when I got in the truck, I realized it wasn't their decision. I needed to do this as a way of um, taking care of my children, being a meaningful parent to my children, being who I needed to be for myself. 
And she has that tattoo on her forearm that says, I got to go. And for her, being in the truck and being in motion and being the sort of moving force that makes the country work is how she's expressing herself as a person, as a mother, as a parent, as an African-American person. It's all crucially tied in there with the way that trucking feels for the people who are doing it and the way that moving through space becomes a like a metaphorical way of describing what it's like to have and be a particular identity in the U.S. today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um, you start off the book um, by essentially arguing that um, truck drivers are um, overregulated and underpaid, um, which... Um, you also talk a little bit about how you said that to people and people thought that was controversial. Um, so I was wondering if you could unpack that argument for us um, that you set up um, so nicely in the book. Yeah. Um, if you're a non-trucker who just sees billboards and per mile prices on the back of trucks and sees the popular media, you would think that truckers make a lot of money, right? But this is not true. There was a moment in the late 70s, early 80s where it was true, but it has not been true for a very long time. So the first thing to understand is trucking hours. Most jobs in the United States are under the control of the Department of Labor. That's the department that mandates things like the eight-hour workday, overtime for anything over 40 hours a week, time and a half for holidays, all those things. That's the Department of Labor. Truckers are not covered by the Department of Labor. They're covered by the Department of Transportation. And so none of those rules I just listed apply to trucking. Truckers drive 11 hours a day and work three additional, so a total of 14 hours a day. And they don't get any overtime pay. They don't get any of those other um, protections I was describing. They're paid by the mile. So truckers and farm workers are the only uh, sort of um, commonly held jobs in the United States that still operate under the piecework system of pay that used to be, you know, before the um, labor reforms that are about the Department of Labor, they used to be common, right? Like you used to work in a factory and you'd be paid like by the pair of pants or, you know, by the assembly line part. That's how labor used to be organized in the U.S. But labor reformers when they took children out of labor and decided on the eight-hour workday, took away all of those structures and said that they were abusive. Um, and, it, you know, that's what sweated labor means, right? And trucking and farm working are st still follow that model. So a trucker is paid by the mile, meaning that if there's um, traffic or road construction or bad weather or breakdowns, or having to wait to get your truck loaded or any of those things, you're not paid for any of that time as a trucker. You're only paid for time that you're rolling. And you're allowed to roll for a total of 11 and work for a total of 14 hours a day. So 
when I say that the average trucker salary is, I think, 38000 is the current figure, you need to be aware that for the $38,000, you're working 14 or considerably more hours, and you're not at home. So all the things that people do in order to make life affordable are not available to you, right? It's very difficult to cook your own food because you're away from home. You don't have any of the kind of cooperative things that people do to make uh, living on a low salary more comfortable. So $38,000 for that much work is considerably under a minimum wage in most cases. Now, minimum wage jobs like, say, at Walmart are covered by the Department of Labor, so you can't make a total of $35,000, but that's because you're working a different amount of hours, right? So the pay for trucking is incredibly low. Should you happen to be one of the truckers who survives the first four or five years, you can get to a company that pays you better and gets more um, freedom of where you're driving and when. So some truckers will make 80, 85,000 a year. And plenty of truckers make way under 35, right? That's how averages work. But it is possible to have a trucking job still in which you have some autonomy and you have decent pay. You're still working incredibly long hours, but that is possible. But it's very rare. The common sort of format is you're away from home um, except for two to four days a month. And you're working a relentlessly exhausting schedule and you're making you know, thirty-five dollars to $40,000 a year for doing that. So that's the pay structure of trucking, and that also explains why. The other part is the regulation. Um, until 1978, the U.S. government was committed to regulating freight. So they set standards for what it should cost to move stuff from, say, California to the East Coast, and they set freight rates, and companies had to comply with those. In 1978, Jimmy Carter signed a piece of legislation that's called deregulation, which is very deceptive because it sounds like they unregulated things, right, from the name of it. But what they did is shift who they regulated. So the government stopped regulating freight entirely. This was a multi-year process, but it started in 78. They left that up to the market, right, whatever that means. So now when a piece of stuff needs to be moved from one place to another place, the company or firm or individual that makes the lowest bid gets the freight. So there's sort of a competitive market advantage to move stuff for less and less and less. And the government has no role in regulating that anymore, a very limited role. And what the government did is turn all of its attention onto regulating the truckers themselves, right? So, and this is a common labor model in, you know, late capitalism. Instead of regulating the structure or the system, we allow the market to take over that in order to maximize profits and return regulatory attention to the individual worker. So in the case of truckers, their schedule, their sleep, their medical care, their um, daily driving life is regulated to a really high degree. So, for example, frequently now there is a camera in the truck that observes the road ahead and observes the driver. 
continuously while they're in the truck. Um, there's uh, regulators, which are called governors on a lot of trucks that don't allow them to go past a certain speed. There's automatic braking. So if you get too close to, you know, one of those barrels for construction, the truck will break. There are all of these technologies in place that make the truck driver's life um, micromanaged and overregulated. So truckers are required to do a physical before, the, before we can get the CDL. And the physical measures your blood pressure, your, you know, sugars, um, and your neck circumference. And if your neck circumference is over a particular set amount, then you have to do a sleep study. And as a trucker, if they require you to do a sleep study, the odds are very good that you will be diagnosed with sleep apnea. If this happens, then you have to get a CPAP machine that you have to run in your truck a set amount of hours per night, and that's um, regulated by your company. And truckers will tell you that the people who run the sleep apnea tests are the people who sell the equipment, and they have a stake in being sure that a lot of people get the diagnosis so that they can make the profit of selling the equipment. So these are just examples of the way that the regulations that govern truckers' daily lives have increased exponentially as the pay has decreased. So truckers feel like they're treated like infantile um, idiots who can't make any decisions. And the government is super committed to managing every little thing they do to the sort of nth degree at the same time as the sort of public perception of their importance and worth is decreasing and the amount of money they can take home at the end of the shift is decreasing. And all these things are happening at the same time. What, what's important to emphasize right now though is that in spite of this um, sort of perfect storm of uh, job difficulties, they still really love it. And that's really hard to give a sense of, right? Like when I, when I talk about what the experience of truckers actually is and how different it is from what I thought, it's important to me to emphasize that talking to them about it, they still get this sort of look of excitement and joy on their face when they talk about the experience of being in the truck going down the road. There's still so much pleasure that they experience from knowing that the work they do is important, that we all depend on it. They all say that they have the best view at their office window of anyone. They love sort of being out there and doing stuff. And like, you know, we all know that so many of our jobs now are just so like fragmented and um, uh, alienated. You know, we're just sort of sitting at computers. Who knows what we're doing? And truckers don't have that experience, right? Like truckers go to the backside of factories and put stuff in their trucks that then they deliver to car plants that they see in the cars they drive. Like they'll go to the produce fields and watch workers cut celery. And then the celery is loaded into their trucks and then they drive it to the grocery store. And then the next day they go and buy it, right? Like, they're seeing the stuff happen and they're doing jobs that are crucial and important and that we all depend upon. And they know that and it makes them feel alive and important. And, um, and also just driving is physically 
so satisfying. I mean, there's any number of gears, right? 14 is common, but there's a lot of gears. You have to shift in and out of them. There's millions of gauges. You have to monitor the pressure in your brakes. Um, you have to pay attention to the DEF. I mean, there's a million things to attend to. So you have this sort of high level of um, adrenaline when you're driving. And also, it's a really dangerous job. So you're always sort of trying to be alert to the weather and any weather conditions that might be happening. Most truckers have tornado stories. Um, so there's kind of the adrenaline of the fear that you're always living with that adds a kind of edge to it. But there's something about the sort of feeling of connection with the vehicle and its size and power and importance. And you're, you know, go back to the experience of me sitting in the, in the cab, right? You're there and you're doing it and it, it feels so vital and you feel so sort of alive and engaged with the world when you're doing it. So even though the pay is decreasing and the regulations are increasing, the job still has so much, um, so much to offer the people who do it. And that's one of the things that's frustrating to me is like they, they want to be left alone to do their jobs because they really love them. And um, we all need it, right? So th there's a way that one of the things I want to do is um, get people to kind of know that what they want, they love the work and they just want to be able to do it in a reasonably respected and well-paid and um, just trusted way when they're out doing the job. They do have some amazing stories of what it's like. But the danger is also really important, right? I interviewed 66 truckers. I interviewed them between 2014 and 15. 66 people. Of those 66 people, four are dead now. I'm like, I, I know them. I mean... The, the it's one of the most dangerous jobs um, and the regulations don't help. So when people talk about the sort of uh, network of regulations that govern truckers, the reasons they give are highway safety. But that is just a cover for the real reason for the increase of regulations over truckers, which is um, disrespect for the working class, especially a working class that is increasingly queer, female, and non-white. So that's the one reason. And the other reason is corporate profits. So the trucking workforce is obsessed with increasing the amount of money that goes to the mega carriers, the huge corporations that move freight from place to place, increasing their profits and decreasing the freedom and independence of the people who do the work, right? Those two things. And highway safety is merely the language they use to cover what it is that they're doing. And this is what I believe, but I also have specific examples that, in my opinion, completely prove this. For example, my favorite example of this is um, fireworks. So, you know, there's these whole rules that say you can only drive for 11 hours, after which you have to take a break of eight consecutive hours in the sleeper. And this is, we are told that this is for highway safety, so that drivers will be rested, and no one will be harmed. However, if it's right before the 4th of July and fireworks are being delivered to the 
places where we do fireworks on the 4th of July. And the fireworks are, for reasons, running late. The hours of service rules are suspended for those drivers because you don't want people in lovely towns everywhere to not get the fireworks that they want when they want them. So therefore, those truck drivers are allowed to continue driving well past the normal 11 hours so that customers will not be inconvenienced. Now, these are drivers that are driving 53 feet length full of explosives, right? There's fireworks in there. And what we say is like, oh, don't worry. We need to get them there on time. You can just keep going. Don't worry about your hours of service. And that's just one example, right? They do that all the time. As soon as it's in the interest of corporate profits to suspend the hours of service regulations, they do it in a heartbeat. But then they say again, oh, well, we have to have all these regulations because of highway safety. It's not about highway safety. It's about their money and the dehumanization of the workers, which increases the more that the workers become, you know, stigmatized populations of a whole collection of types. So that's one of the things that my book argues that I just want people to be aware of that. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the culture of rest stops and kind of the community and sex um, and risk all associated um, within those spaces? Yeah. Um, the, I have a chapter in my book called The Pickle Park, which is what rest stops and truck stops are called. They're sort of notorious spaces of public sex. And anyone listening who's been to them and sort of thought about it can kind of remember seeing some indications of this, right? But um, as cities, because of gentrification and public policy changes, cities have pushed the locations of public sex out of urban spaces. So, you know, there used to be like parks or piers where people could meet up and have some casual anonymous public sex but that's increasingly rare in urban areas. So that um, commercial sex trade moves to the fringes, and one of the places that it moves is truck stops. And truck stops have also always been sites of public sex since, like, the very beginning. They've always been participating in that. So that's increasing as, uh, as gentrification pushes more people out. But the interesting thing about... Um, truck stop sex to me is that it's it's something that challenges uh, definitions of what queer or gay identity are or are about. So many of the people who have frequent public sex in truck stops and rest areas don't identify as gay. They're just people doing whatever is easy or handy or available, or they so they'll have sex with same sex partners. Um, but it's not because they're gay. It's just because that's part of what trucker life is like. And that's an ongoing um, way of sort of seeing or having sexual identity in blue-collar public space. And this is important to me because of how my book fits within sort of queer studies as a field or as an endeavor. So there's a way that public policy around um, gay, lesbian, and transgender life is about assimilation and 
getting access to a concrete set of civil rights that are seen as desirable. And what queer studies does in opposition to that is say, what would queer liberation look like? What are ways of being or doing or having sex or gender that are not about civil rights, which are a category of access that are available and meaningful only to sort of a particular class or group of people, right? So think about marriage, for example. The people that I interview are not interested in marriage. They don't care about it. They see marriage as like a middle-class issue that's about, you know, inheritance and tax relief, things that are not central to the concerns of truckers, right? What truckers want is... Um, to be left alone by the government as much as possible. And so thinking about truck stops as a space where people do desire and pleasure that is not tied to specific definitions of what uh, sexual identity is, what gender identity is, they're just about fun and escape kind of the insertion into a normative idea of what family is, what gender is, what desire is, that aren't about that. That seems to me like a really important addition to um, what queer activism needs to think about right now, so that queer activism doesn't become, let's just be just like straight people only, you know, we're going to do it over here. Because that is just both completely boring and letting other people set the rules. And I don't want to do either of those things. And truck stops are not a place where that happens. Truck stops are a place where, to go back to um, the kind of movement of trucking, they're a place where you're never going to see these people again. And so whatever gender or sex it is that you have or do there is just about that moment in that place and that time. And then you move on and you can do another thing. And that sort of fluid way of understanding gender and sex and identity seems really um, revolutionary and important to thinking about queer belonging in, you know, the years going forward. I really wish that queer studies would pay a lot of attention to what's going on in truck steps and think like, hey, this is a model that we could all learn a lot from. Um, so this is the last question I have about the book, um, but I was wondering if you might um, tell us the story or relay us the story of um, someone or one of your narrators um, who you think kind of captures um, a lot of the themes within your book around um, like gender and race um, in particular, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. What? One story that certainly captured my attention was two lesbians who had trucked as a team together forever. One of them was a Filipina immigrant. One of them was a white lesbian woman. And they were a couple and they had been together and been trucking for, oh, I'm going to say 18 to 20 years as a team. And each of their families knew that they were lesbians and that they were with each other. Neither of their families knew that they were truckers. They had spent the last 18 to 20 years hiding that from their family. And this was fascinating to me, right? Because I'm like, all right, so you're out about being gay and you're out about being in an interracial romance, but you're not out about trucking. Um, and, you know, <laughs> they kind of laughed and they're like, yeah, 
Our families think that trucking is dangerous and that it's beneath us and we like it and it um, allows us to be who we are and to feel like we're in control of that and to have sort of the excitement of always going to new places and facing the challenge. And, you know, we love the work, but we don't want our families to know that this is who we are. Um, and that just said a lot to me about how trucking is viewed in the U.S., right? It's something that's even more um, disrespected than queer love. So, you know, that, and I don't even know how they kept that from their families for so long, right? Because they worked through these incredibly long hours. And essentially what happened is they just had almost no contact with their families other than the occasional phone call, which, you know, with cell phones, you can do from wherever. So they, in order to be um, secretive about being truckers, they kind of lost meaningful contact with their family because keeping that secret was more important than, um, than keeping their family connections alive. That's just super interesting as we think about class and labor and the way that they all um, kind of feed into uh, sexual and racial identity and embodiment. Yeah. Um, so we've taken up a lot of your time today. Um, and I have two things that I want to ask you um, before we sign off. Um, first, if you could um, plug any of your um, information, if you have a website or any social media accounts. Um, and secondly, if you could talk about um, what projects you're working on next, um, or just kind of where your thoughts are going now after this project. All right. Um, I have a website, which is www.annbailey.com, and my last name is spelled B-A-L-A-Y, so that's crucial to know in order to access the website. Um, and there you can buy my books or look at and read the articles that I've written um, around the topics that we're talking about today. Um, so that's a good way to kind of follow everything that I do. In terms of what I'm doing next, I have two sort of projects that I've started. One of them has to do with autonomous trucks. So um, autonomous trucks, which don't need or have drivers in them, are coming really quickly. They're already being tested. They're already being driven in some states. They're already out there. The technology exists. And to do with the... Um, disrespect of low-wage stigmatized workers, there is a general sense in the wider community that a truck with no one in it is better than a trucker with that kind of person in it. So I believe that driverless trucks will be um, the dominant way that freight is transported within a few years. And this is important to me because there are 3.5 million truckers, and these truckers are increasingly queer, non-white, trans immigrant people. And you know how when there's ever any labor change, the, um, the stigmatized last hired workers are the first ones that are dismissed. So there's going to be a, a labor crisis as these people lose their jobs. And these are our people, right? And we, we as a community need to think about what it's going to mean that there's going to be a huge amount of people without any meaningful work really soon. Um, so that's something that I'm trying to think about. I'm trying to think about what can be done to increase knowledge about that, to provide 
alternative work options? Like what would be involved in teaching those people how to work on autonomous vehicles? So those jobs will first go to Silicon Valley whiteboards, right? But maybe there's a way to make them also available to the people who used to drive the trucks. And so sort of trying to talk to the companies that are involved in designing this technology in such a way that the technology is responsive to the actual situation of drivers and built that way. And that people who used to drive trucks are some of the people who are going out there and addressing the problems in the technology. That's something that I'm trying to figure out how to um, get started or make happen. And then I'm also starting an ethnographic project that's based on oral histories of people who do sex work at truck stops. So that's a huge um, subject that I ran into a lot doing this book. There's a lot of um, usually not sort of professional sex workers, more kind of convenient in the moment, getting a little extra money by selling sex in truck stops. And I want to think about, and many of them are queer, trans, and of color um, people who happen to live near truck stops or are frequently um, access sex work as the only um, available employment option for them. So I want to think about what that has to do with movement, what that has to do with global warming, migration, all of these issues kind of come together in the movement that connects trucking with um, economies of selling sex in the vicinity of truck stops. So I'm meeting with and talking to people who are involved in that whole exchange and thinking about how that's related to all these issues in uh, ways that are often invisible and we need to know more about. Yeah, well, both those projects sound um, really exciting and um, I'm excited to follow them and, and check them out. Um, so I want to give you a huge thanks um, for being on the on the show today and maybe also a huge thanks to all of your narrators, right, and all of the people who do this work. Thank you. Um, I hope they get a chance to listen to this. So um, shout out to them. <laughs> um, well, thanks again. Um, and it was so great to talk with you today.